We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 8 this morning, so if you have a Bible with you, Nehemiah chapter 8. As it's been a few weeks since we last looked at the story of Nehemiah, let me very quickly get you up to speed on what's been happening. If you remember, the, the, the whole story pretty much takes place in a city called Jerusalem. It was a city that has been destroyed and has laid in ruins for 141 years. And over that time, over the years, there have been a whole series of failed and aborted attempts to rebuild and restore the city. But that all changes when God calls Nehemiah to relocate to Jerusalem and oversee the work of restoring it. However, I think it's probably fair to say it wasn't all plain sailing. As we've been seeing over the last few weeks, Nehemiah experiences great opposition. People oppose him. There are death threats against him. All kinds of injustice happens to him. But because of his love for God and because of his faithfulness, Nehemiah perseveres. And amazingly, in just 52 days, the walls of the city are rebuilt. Remember, these walls have been in disrepair for 141 years. Many people have come and tried to restore it all. None have succeeded. Nehemiah does it in 52 days. Now, we're not going to be looking at chapter 7 today, but in that chapter, it records how 50,000 people relocate to Jerusalem. They move back into the city. And at the point where we join the story today, these people, these 50,000 people, have been in Jerusalem for just a week. There's a lot of work still to be done. There are houses to build and businesses to open and a whole lot of infrastructure to put in place. But they decide their first priority, the number one thing they want to do, is to gather together and learn the scriptures and spend some time worshipping God. Now I've got to tell you, this is one of my favourite chapters in the whole Bible, not just because I'm preaching on it today and sometimes preachers can say, well, this is my favourite passage and this is my favourite passage and no, no, this really genuinely is one of my favourite chapters of the whole Bible. We're going to see today how all the people showed up and stood for six hours in the Middle East, so blazing sunshine in the heat of the day and they did that because they believed that the scriptures were unlike any other book. They believed the scripture was the very word of God. Now I reckon one of the biggest problems facing us today is an over-familiarity with the Bible. We just take it for granted. Back in Nehemiah's day, there were no printing presses, So if you were to engage with the scriptures, you had to show up and ask someone to translate them or interpret them for you. Nowadays, we have the Bible in our own language. It's easy to get our hands on a Bible. 20 years or so back, a number of my friends were involved with smuggling Bibles into China and they told stories of kind of smoking the Bibles across the border. And, uh, and these Christian believers uh, in China would literally risk their life to visit them 
and get their hands on one of the Bibles for themselves. And my friends told stories of kind of scores of believers from China kind of getting hold of a Bible and embracing it with tears streaming down their faces. They had a Bible of their own. I don't want us to miss the wonderful privilege and gift we've been given. So here's what I want to do. As we work our way through this wonderful chapter in the story of Nehemiah, I want to draw your attention, first of all, to the people's attitude towards God's Word. And then secondly, I want us to learn from their response to it. Let's start with that attitude towards God's Word. The first thing we see right away, the beginning of chapter 8, is their incredible desire for Scripture. Verse 1, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. How many people was that? All the people. The best part of 50,000 people show up. Imagine if you were there. Imagine you had to walk to the church meeting. Then you had to stand for six hours because there weren't any chairs. You're standing there in the Middle Eastern heat. You're packed in close to one another. Everyone pushing against you because there is no sound system. There is no PA. So you've got to get close enough to hear. That's exactly what's happening here. And here's what they do. They ask this guy Ezra to do something for them. They, They give him an order. Here's what they say. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So you've got these 50,000 people calling for the preacher to read them the law of Moses. That's the first five books of the Old Testament. They're saying, bring us Genesis, bring us Exodus, bring us Leviticus, bring us Numbers, Bring us Deuteronomy and bring them to us right away. How many of you got up this morning hoping that I would read the whole book of Leviticus to you? For the sake of those listening online, not a single hand has gone up. These are people that are desperate to learn the Scriptures. There's an insatiable desire to hear God's Word. They're crying out for it. Give us the Bible. Now look, you're not going to do this. You're not going to stand in a meeting for six hours with 50,000 other people pressing in on you unless you are absolutely convinced that Scripture contains the very words of God. And that's exactly what they believed. That's why they gathered with such anticipation and such excitement. They knew that the Scriptures are different from any book that was, is, or ever will be written. They knew that Scripture was perfect, and it was from God. It was inspired, and it was authoritative in a way that nothing else was or could be. They knew that God had chosen to speak directly to them through the pages of the Scriptures. That's why I believe they were so desperate to hear the scriptures, that they wanted to hear from God. They were convinced that the God who spoke creation into existence with such tremendous authority and power has today chosen to speak to his people through scripture. And just in case you're wondering, 
That's what we believe as a church as well. We are a Bible-believing church. We absolutely are in every way. We take it at face value. We accept everything that Scripture, everything that the Bible says about itself. So, for example, in Proverbs 30, verse 5, it says that every word of God is flawless. We believe that. Psalm 19 says that the law of God is perfect and it's trustworthy and it's true. It speaks of the perfection and the authority and the helpfulness and the majesty of Scripture. All of which leads the psalmist to draw this conclusion about the words of God. Verse 10, they are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Isaiah 55, verse 11, God says, My word that goes out from my mouth, it will not return to me empty. It will accomplish what I desire. It will achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Hebrews 4, 11 and 12, describes the Word of God as being alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the very thoughts and attitudes of the heart. In other words, God's Word convicts us. It challenges us. It highlights sin and folly and rebellion and stupidity. And it leaves room, more importantly, for God to reshape us and mould us and make us to be more like him. We believe all of that. We believe 2 Timothy 3 verse 16, that all of Scripture, the whole Bible, is God-breathed, And is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That means as parents or as friends or as family or as employees. When we're winning, when we're losing. When we're rich, when we're broke. When we're healthy, when we're sick. When we're living, when we're dying. Whatever our circumstances are, our first course of action must be to go to Scripture because we're convinced that God will speak to us through his word. Listen, if we believe that this book really is breathed out by God, that it really is God's word directly spoken to us today, if we believe that, then surely we will be serious in getting to grips with what it says. Not because we feel we ought to, or we should, or because we feel kind of guilty or condemned if we don't. It's not like this kind of dull routine that we must dutifully endure. No, if we love God, and we believe that this really is his word, then why wouldn't we be full of desire for it. That's what we see in this passage, the people full of desire for God's word. The second thing we see 
is they are incredibly attentive. Reading on, verse 2. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak until noon. How many hours was that? That's a five or six hour sermon. Now there's a thought. I mean, wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't that be amazing? Six hours of preaching. Continuing, he read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the Lord. They were listening. They weren't text messaging under the guise of taking notes. I've seen it happen. They were paying attention to the scriptures. They were attentive to God's word. You know, you hear loads of people nowadays saying, well, well, preaching just doesn't work. I mean, it's just irrelevant. I mean, it's argued we, we can't give really focused attention to anything for longer than eight seconds. Most of us can't give sustained attention to anything for longer than 20 minutes. Now, I'm not going to ask you for a show of hands on this one. It would be too demoralizing for me. But a whole bunch of you will already have been secretly wishing that I would hurry up. The nervous laughter reveals it. (laughs) I mean, I've got important things to do. I've got to get back for lunch. I mean, the Formula One is on in a little while. I've I've got to catch up on last night's X Factor. I've I've got to call my friends and gossip about them. Hurry up, get a move on. I mean, life needs to continue. Think about it. Your favourite TV show gets more time than I do. You're thinking, well, that's a lot better. Now, that may well be the case. I'm not talking about the quality of the entertainment I provide. But as long as I am sticking to what the Bible says, then this really is a whole lot better for you. Now, look, there are all kinds of things that we can and we should and we must be doing. But our biggest need, our greatest need, is to be taught God's Word. Now, although we have quite a short attention span... I'd suggest all of us can sustain our concentration for longer periods of time by actively choosing to refocus our mind. I mean, how else do you sit through a film or the X Factor or the Grand Prix? I mean, you need to kind of consciously be deciding, I'm going to keep concentrating, I'm going to keep concentrating. We can do that. It's within our power. And that's what I want to encourage you to do. Why don't you come up with ways to help you become more attentive. might be taking notes and not texting discreetly, but actually taking notes. It might be trying to remember the main points. It might just be a case of disciplining and training your mind not to keep wandering. Because if we really do believe that this book is God's word, won't we do all we can to be attentive to it? It's what we see with the people with Nehemiah. The third thing we notice about their attitude is they were incredibly respectful towards God's word. Verse 4, Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him, on his right, stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah, 
On his left were Padiah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshalem. Just say it very quickly and confidently. Everyone will believe you. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. If you like, this is a way of illustrating in a very visual way that Scripture is in authority over us. And everything we believe gets tested against it. Ezra is showing the people that God speaks to us, first of all, if we open the book. We do actually need to open the book. And God speaking to us is our highest authority. Very practically. Let me try and show you what that means here at Church Central. First of all, here's what we don't do. I repeat, we don't do. We don't argue with the Bible. We don't try and suppress what the Bible says. We're not supposed to disagree with the Bible. We're not supposed to kind of edit out the bits we don't like. We're not supposed to say, well, the current thinking nowadays is that there is no objective truth. So I guess I can make this mean whatever I want it to. I can kind of twist it to suit what I think. And I mean, the the feminists, they say that It's all written by men, so why read it? And the chauvinists say, well, it says to respect women, so we don't like it either. So we just disregard the whole lot. We don't stand over, kind of above Scripture, and say, well, that was just a long time ago. They were very primitive back then. I'm sure God has kind of come to his senses. He's changed his mind. That was true then, but surely it can't be true now. I mean, it might have been true for them, Certainly not true for me. Or, I know what it says, but I just don't like it. So, I'm going to pick out the bits I agree with, the bits that inspire me or or sound good or kind of fit with what I think. I'll pick those out and ignore the rest. We do not, we must not, we cannot view Scripture in that way. Here's how we do view Scripture. We view it like this. It's above us. It's interprets me. So, if it tells me to be quiet and listen, or if it tells me to stop arguing and to repent, if it tells me I'm not in charge because God is, if it tells me that there is truth but it doesn't all flow from me, if it tells me that I'm a sinner and God is good, if it tells me I'm not God, if it, it tells me that my fallen brain just isn't capable of knowing God apart from God making himself known to me, if it says all of that, then I accept that. And if God, in his humility, and in his kindness, and his mercy, and in his grace, for whatever reason, has decided to speak to me in this book, you know what? I'm an utter fool to argue with him. I'm, I'm just ridiculously stupid to disagree, to ignore this, to disobey what he says. Let me ask you, do you want to hear from God? Do you want to hear from God? If you do, open the book. I mean, it's simple. Ezra opened the book. Let me ask you, do you open the book? It's been said the Bible is the most widely published and least known book we have. Some people pick up every other book than the Bible. Some people rely just on their favourite authors. Now, don't hear me wrong, I love books. I did a degree in English literature. I'm I'm certainly not against books, but nothing, 
comes anywhere close to this book. When's the last time you opened the book? Do you open the book other than on Sundays? Do you apply it to your life? Do you view it, in all honesty, as your final authority? Listen, the highest authority in this church isn't our own personal preference. It's not our experience of life up until this point. It's not even the current cultural or sociological thinking. It's Scripture. We weigh absolutely everything against what God says in His Word. So, if I ever make a mistake, if you're listening to the preaching, you think, I'm just not quite sure the Bible says that. Show me from the Scriptures. I promise you, I will change my mind because this has got to be the final authority. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. That's how much they respected and revered God's word. They stood when it was opened. You know, we live in this very disrespectful culture. Parents aren't respected by children. Leaders aren't respected by followers. God, sadly, isn't often respected by people who claim they're Christians. And this general lack of respect finds its way, seeps right into the way a lot of people view Scripture. We're to have a deep reverence and respect for the Word of God. A number of years ago now, when I was at university, a friend of mine who was a Muslim really convicted me about this. I remember one day going to his house, and he was carrying his Quran. And he enters his house on a table or desk or something in front of him, kind of all these kind of papers and books and piles of rubbish. And he carefully kind of ordered them all together, put them in a neat pile, and then uh, intentionally placed his Quran right on top of the pile. And I could see he, he meant to do it. And I, I said, well, what are you doing? He said, I never, ever, ever put anything on top of the Quran. The Quran is sacred and it sits on top of everything else. But nothing ever sits on top of it. Never dishonour the Quran like that. Incidentally, I think that's at least part of the reason why a lot of Muslims have no time for Christianity. Because they see the way we treat our Bibles, kind of throwing them around and kind of leaving them on the floor under our chairs, and they just view it as being deeply disrespectful. Just by way of an aside... For the sake of people watching in from outside, let's not do that. Let's treat the Bible with respect. It's not that we worship a book. It's not that the book is holy and sacred. No, we worship the person who wrote the book. And the more we know him, and the more we love him, people quickly picking up their Bibles from the floor, the more we love him and respect him, the more we'll respect his word. So we've looked at the attitude of the people in Jerusalem to God's Word. We've seen how they were full of desire for it. We've seen how they were incredibly attentive to it. We've also learned how they respected it deeply. I want us to change tack slightly now and study their response to God's Word. As we read on, the first thing we see is they respond with worship. Verse 6, Ezra 
praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen! Amen! Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces on the ground. Understanding truth must lead to worship. When God speaks to us through his word, it can't just be this passionless, emotionless, distant, exclusive, intellectual, logical assent. It has to be this passion that comes from your heart. You know, the reason that we lift our hands, or sometimes bow down on the floor, or clap, or dance, or jump, or sway slightly from side to side, isn't because we are one of those kinds of churches. It's because we see it in God's Word. And God is so great and so awesome that you cannot behold him and consider how much he loves you and then not express it in some way. And so the people here raised their hands. They bowed down and they lifted their voices. They said, Amen! Amen! Now, it's a word you often hear in kind of Christian circles. When we're talking about amen, pretty much what we're saying is, yes, Lord, I agree. That's the truth. That's right. That makes sense. I want you to speak to me more. I'm with you. Amen. It's okay if you say amen. It's okay if you respond in some way. And I know some of you were maybe raised in traditions where you were told, well, we believe the Bible. We accept that it's the truth but we mustn't get very excited in case we get slightly carried away and people think we're extreme or slightly over the top. When we're hearing God speaking to us, it's okay to respond. In fact, there are times when we must respond. Would that we responded more. I don't get how you can sit there listening to the glorious truth of the gospel and remain kind of stony-faced. It must lead to worship and heartfelt, exuberant, passionate worship at that. That's what we see happening here. Second response is one of repentance. Verse 7, the Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Achab, Shabbatai, Hadiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jozabad, Hanan and Peliah, They sounded very different in the other site, but uh, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. That is a great definition of what preaching is. It's making the Bible clear and giving the meaning so that the people can understand what's being read. Verse 9. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Whole picture here is 50,000 people, faces pressed on the ground, weeping, wailing, 
mourning, crying out to God for forgiveness. Their voice is kind of muffled because their faces are pressed into the dirt. Absolutely devastated, utterly broken. Why? Because they realise how far away from God they've been. Maybe for the first time they understand God's word and it hits them. They haven't been living in line with it. And they're distraught. I tell you what, I wish we had that same kind of response to God's word. That when it convicts us, when it challenges us, we wouldn't just kind of shrug our shoulders and do nothing about it or try and justify our actions and make out that in reality there's not that much wrong. Here's the point. Scripture exists not just for information, but for transformation. We have the Bible not just for information, but for transformation. The whole point in reading the Bible isn't just to memorize a load of facts so you can appear really knowledgeable and impress people with the degree of spirituality you have. The point of the Bible is that you would learn about God and repent of sin and become more like Jesus. That's the point. That's why James 1.22 says, don't many listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Now let me say this. Your view of God the way you think about him, the way you understand him, the way you've experienced him, your view of God pretty much determines whether or not you are going to obey Scripture. If you see God as this kind of mean, distant, sort of abusive father figure, then when he speaks, it'll be like this kind of shouting voice the whole time, and, and you'll be saying, no, 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 I don't want to obey. But if you see, if you understand, if your experience is that God's a loving father, that really you're one of his kids, that he deeply cares for you, and that his commandments are good, and he's just looking out for you, then when he speaks, I'd suggest you're going to be a whole lot more inclined to listen and obey. That's why Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. Jesus doesn't say, obey me! What he says is, I love you. And if you love me, then you'll obey me. And you'll know that when I tell you to do something, it's really a good thing. I've got two kids, two sons. I've got to watch what I say at this point, because one of them is listening to this. But uh, two sons, 50-50 chance that you'll be able to guess right what I'm talking about, uh, but you might be wrong. So don't jump to assumptions here. But I do this with my kids uh, uh, a lot of the time. I, I want to build relationship with them. So one of my kids recently, not saying which one, one of my kids recently was ever so slightly disobedient. It doesn't happen often in our home, but every now and again, a little bit of disobedience. So what I do, I get down on their level, look them in the eye, and ask them a question. Who am I? That's not a deep philosophical conversation. (laughs) It's an actual question, not a rhetorical question. I'm looking for an answer. Who am I? You're my dad. Okay, who are you? I'm not going to give away their name, but basically, I'm your son. Okay, are you sinning? Yes, my kids are pretty honest. 
yeah, I'm sinning. Not totally repentant all the time, but at least they're honest. Yeah, I'm doing wrong. Okay. Now, I told you to do something. Are you doing it? No. Okay. I want you to consider the whole of your life up until this point. Has there been any occasion that you can remember when I've told you to do a bad thing? And kind of 10 minutes of careful reflection, kind of looking through notebooks and (laughs) final conclusion. I'm not a perfect dad, but no, you don't tell me to do bad things. Pretty much I can say, and it's half minutes now, but you tell me to do good things. Okay, do I love you? Yeah, I'm pretty sure you love me. Now, are my rules to keep you out of trouble and to make life good for you and for the rest of us? And I'm paraphrasing here, but answer comes back, yes, Dad, your commandments are good. (laughs) You love me. You're my dad. I want to obey. Kind of that kind of sentiment. It takes a while, but we do the whole thing. And then I ask, so what are you going to do? Son, what are you going to do? All right, I'll do it. I'm sorry, I'll do it. I think these people, here in Nehemiah chapter (coughs) 8, rightly understood the relationship. They rightly understood that God is a loving father. And that his commandments are actually for the good of his children. His commandments are to bless them and protect them and make their life better and make the lives of others around them a whole lot better. So all of a sudden, they start listening to what God says in his word and they say, you know what? If God wants to talk to us, we should listen and obey because he loves us. We believe he's wise and we know that he's good. So we need to hurry up and get right with him. We need to go away and obey him. Now, when Nehemiah saw that this is how the people were responding, he tells them to stop mourning. Because there's a time to mourn and weep and repent in sorrow, but there does come a point where you need to move on from there. Which leads on to the third and final response to God's word that we see in this passage. Namely, joy. Verse 10, Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people saying, be still for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. I try and unpack all of this. Some Christians mistake the sentiment here, and they say, well, if we genuinely know God, we should never be sad, because God's a good God. We, we, we should just think positive thoughts, and we should always be happy. But that's not the message of the Bible. I mean, have you read Lamentations? No, you haven't. Well, if you were, I mean, it, as the name suggests, it's not a particularly happy book. Did you know that most of the Psalms are actually Psalms of lament? Jesus himself, on occasions, was described as a man of sorrows familiar with suffering. It's okay to be broken. It's okay to be downhearted. 
It's okay to shed tears, particularly when you're made aware of your sin and and the Holy Spirit is convicting you. But we don't have to stay in that place. Because you see, there's a kind of joy that we can experience that makes us strong. Nehemiah comes out to all of these people, 50,000 people, repenting with tears, and he says, do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And all of a sudden, it went from being a city filled with nothing but sorrow and weeping and mourning and tears to being a city filled with music and parties and people enjoying one another's company because, here's the key, they now understood the words that had been made known to them. That's the key. The only way to find this kind of joy is to start by opening the book And not only open the book, but be attentive to it, seek to understand it, and then obey it. And so to finish, I want to tell you what this book is all about. Now, rest assured, I've already alluded to six-hour sermons, and telling you what this book is all about might sound a slightly lengthy procedure. I'm not going to go to six hours going to be very short. In fact, we will be done before one, I promise you. But I want to just explain very quickly why this book can be the source of our joy. First thing, who's this book all about? Who's the Bible all about? Jesus Christ. I know that seems very simple and kind of like a Sunday school answer. It's all about Jesus. The answer is always Jesus. But it's absolutely essential In John 5, verses 38 and 39, this whole bunch of Old Testament scholars come up to Jesus to argue with him about theology. And Jesus says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. But these are the very scriptures that testify about me. Jesus is saying the whole Bible, I guess including Nehemiah chapter 8, is about him. It's about Jesus. In Matthew 5, 17 and 18, Jesus says, Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Don't think I've come to disagree or disregard all of the Old Testament scriptures. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Why? Because it's all about me. It all points to me. It's all fulfilled in me. And then, at the end of his life, after his resurrection, before his ascension... Luke 24 tells us that there are at least two occasions where Jesus opened up the Old Testament and showed his disciples, again, how it all pointed to him. So first of all then, if you open up the Bible and you don't get Jesus, you won't get joy. If you want to have joy that strengthens you, it requires Jesus. Now here in Nehemiah 8, they were reading from the first five books of the Old Testament. That section of scripture is primarily full of laws. Depending on which scholar you go for and believe, there are somewhere between 611 and 613 laws in total. I haven't counted them all. I fall somewhere in between. 612, that sounds great. Now, how many of you, you've read the Bible, and the more you read it, the worse you feel, because the more you realize how bad you are. You know why you feel bad? Because you are bad. 
I mean, it's not really all that complicated. So if you read the Bible and it says, I don't know, 612 things, do this, do this, do this, do this, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, and you realise, on reflection, I don't do a whole lot of the things that I should do, and I do a lot of those things that I shouldn't do, you can't then just conclude, well, now I'm happy. The joy of the Lord is my strength. I'm so happy because now I understand that I'm condemned and there's punishment and hell and eternal separation. They all belong to me. Joy! No, 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 no. The law exists for this purpose. Romans 3 verse 20. Through the law, we become conscious of sin. It's like the law exists to convict us, to challenge us of our sin. You're supposed to read the law and realise how sinful you are, how far short you fall. We all fall of God's standards. That's what a lot of churches are like. Guy gets up, tells us how bad we are, tells us what we're supposed to do, tells us to try harder, be more disciplined... And it just leads to absolute despair. You end up like these people crying, I tried, I can't do it, I don't think there's any help for me, I just feel condemned by it all. So how do you get from there to joy? Religion, morality, rule keeping, they don't get you to joy, they can't. But the gospel can. The gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the good news. Jesus Christ is the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. This is the most important thing. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He says, what I received from the Old Testament, I guess including from Nehemiah, I passed on to you. And here is the most important thing. Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Now here's the bad news. You're a terrible person. Not being personal, we all are. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. Thoughts, words, deeds, motives, actions. We just keep on doing the wrong thing. But here's the good news. God, in his great love, in his infinite mercy, his tremendous unparalleled patience... He chose to break into human history as Jesus Christ. He chose to live the life we didn't live, a life without sin. He chose to die the death that we should have died, the death that pays the penalty for sin. Three days later, he rose to conquer Satan and sin and death. He ascended into heaven. He's alive and very, very well today. He's king. He's Lord. He's God. He's over all peoples, times, places, religions, philosophies, nationalities, cultures, opinions, perspectives. The good news is, for those of us who accept him, Jesus has taken care of all of our sin, past, present, and future. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, says that God made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness or the rightness of God. A guy called Martin Luther, he calls this the great exchange. 
Everything that you ever have or ever will do wrong, it was put, it was placed on Jesus. And he suffered. And he died. He was punished in your place to pay the penalty for your sins. In addition to that, not only does he take your sin from you, he gives his righteousness to you. You are now declared perfect and righteous in the sight of God. The Bible talks of being regenerated. You're made a new person. It's like you're given a new heart, a new mind, a new will. You're given a new identity, a new family, a new father. That The church becomes like a kind of second family to you. You now have purpose and meaning in life. You're ruled by a new authority. You're led now by the Holy Spirit. God himself personally present with us. You're going to spend forever with him. Jesus Christ has taken away your sin reconciled you, brought you in a relationship with God, renewed you, remade you from the inside out. And that is where our joy is found. Here's how it works. It's like the law convicts you of sin. And it's the gospel, the good news about Jesus, which brings you your joy. It's the law which tells you where you have fallen short. And it's the gospel that tells you that Jesus Christ hasn't fallen short. He's lived. He's died in your place. It's the law that says, you should die. And it's the gospel that says, you will live. It's the law that says, you have no relationship with God because you're unworthy. You're not good enough. It's the gospel which says that Jesus has freely given you his righteousness. He's brought you into right relationship with the God of the Bible forever. And so when it says here that the joy of the Lord is your strength, it's pointing us to Jesus. The source of your joy doesn't have to be your marital status or whether or not you have kids. It doesn't have to be your joy or your ministry. It doesn't have to be your health or your wealth or your popularity. Your joy is in Jesus Christ. And that joy from Jesus will give you the strength you need. The strength to remain single or the strength to be a good spouse. The strength to be a good friend, a good worker, a good student, a good minister of the gospel. You you won't go to people and things and stuff to make you strong and happy. You'll go to Jesus and he'll give you lasting, permanent, true joy. He'll give you strength message of the gospel is you are way worse than you ever feared and you are way more loved than you ever dreamt possible that's the good news and if you're here today and you're not a christian you don't know jesus i want to say to you you need jesus think about it If I was to stand here right now and and suddenly start shouting, the building's on fire, run, and the alarms start ringing, as long as you kind of trust me after what I've just said, you, you would run. You would, at some velocity, leave this building. I'm telling you right now that the flames of hell are as real as that. And when I tell you to run, I'm imploring you, pleading with you to run to Jesus right away 
This is as urgent as it gets. We don't want you to spend one more minute being separated from God and his love and his life and his joy, his hope, his peace and his son. You could pray to Jesus right now. He will forgive you and make you a Christian. So what we're going to do In a moment, we're going to stand, and I want to invite now the musicians to come back up, uh, if that's all right. And we're going to sing in response to this. We're going to raise our voices. We're maybe going to raise our hands. We're, We're going to celebrate the Lord Jesus. And as we're singing, I just want to say, if you're not a Christian, and you want to become one today, as we're singing... I want to invite you, in your own time, just to come to the front here. And there are going to be some people kind of waiting at the front here who would love to chat with you, pray for you, introduce you to the Jesus that I've been speaking about.